want to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast, and that is Happy Car Florida and Happy Car Sales. Now, listen, I've known the owner, Lou Marici, for about 15 years. I've bought cars from him at different locations all throughout South Florida, and now he's doing his own thing, just like me. Go figure that one. Louis Marici runs happycarsflorida.com, and here's the best part about it. If you're interested in buying a car, whether you have good credit, bad credit, or get this, no credit whatsoever, you can buy a car from Louis. It's very simple. All you do is call 954-745-9599. Very specifically, tell Louis you heard about him on my podcast, Swings and Mishes, and he's going to get you into a car. Again, financing is done right in the dealership. It's easy to get a car. At the end of the day, you'll be driving out with whatever car you want. And here's the best part of it. If the car that you want is not on his lot, Louis is going to get it for you. How do I know? Because you can call him right in the cell phone and ask or text him. 561-716-6463. That's Louis's direct number. You text him and say, hey, Louis, I heard about you on Swings and Mishes. Here's the car I want. Can you get it for me? Bam. You got it. You're out and you're good. No credit, bad credit, good credit. Doesn't make a difference who you are. Louis will take care of you. Again, Happy Car Sales, 954-745-9599, located at 203 West State Road 84 in Fort Lauderdale. You'll be leaving Happy Car Sales. Very happy. Welcome to another edition of Swings and Mishes, and you're hearing a different voice today. My name is Ian Smith, and I'm taking over for Jeremy Taché while he's away at Camp Fiesta. I'm joined today by Louis Avila and, of course, Craig Mish, and we're covering the trade deadline. It was a very exciting day yesterday, and I'm excited to see, hear what these guys' thoughts are about it. And it was unexpected to see Zach Gallon go, but we got excited players back. So what about you guys? Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Excited to hear what Craig has to say about all this that's going on. And, yeah. Well, guys, yeah, and, and thanks for doing the podcast with me. Jeremy is at uh, Camp Fiesta. What a great cause that Jeremy's involved in. And so we gave him, of course, a m much deserved week off. But coincidentally, it happened during the trade deadline, as you guys mentioned. And so we've had a lot of questions, of course, on Swings and Mishes, on uh, my Twitter handle on Swings and Mishes. And I'll answer a lot of those questions throughout the podcast. But first and foremost, guys, I know that you guys have a lot of questions for me and some of those questions from online. So uh, fire right away and let's get into it. Yeah, so let's start off with the, with the big news. We've had two big trades on Wednesday right before the deadline. We can start off with the first trade, which was Zach Gallen to the Diamondbacks in return for Jazz Chisholm. What do you have on that? Well, that was a trade that caught me off guard, that's for sure. I'm not going to say that I had heard anything and any news in terms of Gallon even being offered in terms of trade. But uh, that, you know, to kind of walk you through the process is I have another radio show that I do from 12 to 2, and the clubhouse was scheduled to be open at 2.30. So I actually pre-recorded the last five minutes of my radio show so I could get down for the clubhouse opening only to find out that there was going to be a delay. And so at that point, I kind of felt like, there's going to be a trade of some kind today or there'd be no reason to do that. Uh, so we all get into, um, you know, the clubhouse or we get close to it. I'm in the parking lot of Marlins park 
and uh, I get the news that the Diamondbacks are making a trade with the Marlins. Um, John Heyman, I believe, was the first one to uh, report the name of Gallon. I was checking to see if it was a fake account, to be honest with you. I, didn't th- I had heard nothing about it to that point. And then, of course, I broke the news shortly after that Jazz Chisholm was the name involved in the trade. So uh, here's what I could tell you. Um, it was very interesting to talk to Mike Hill at Marlins Park because I think that while our view, we'll start with Gallon, while our view of Gallon may be of uh, maybe a one or a two starter or maybe even a three, I'm not really sure that the Marlins saw him that way. And I wonder if those two starts against the White Sox and Twins really was kind of a sell high. And, and I know that this is kind of excuse talk, and maybe it's even it sounds like it's from the Marlins talk. But, you know, truth be told, I just think that this was a situation where Miami thought they had so much starting pitching and so much starting pitching depth that they needed to acquire a bat. The other thing that I would tell you in this is that they really not just like Jazz Chisholm, But this is what's going to come as a very big surprise to, I think, for a lot of people listening to the podcast, which is both in this trade with Arizona and the trade with Tampa, the Marlins were the ones that were the initiators on both of these trades. Miami wanted to acquire these players before the trade deadline. So I I thought that was a huge surprise to me to find that out as well. It wasn't like Arizona was kicking the door down for Gallon or Tampa was kicking the door down for the players that they gave up. And we'll get into the Rays deal in a minute. The bottom line is Miami really wanted Jazz Chisholm. It's a player who they identified, I think, as far as uh, back as a year ago. And I know a lot of people have asked questions as to what his batting average is and how many strikeouts he is. I don't know that Miami's able to acquire him if he's coming off the year that he had two years ago. So he's a left-handed hitter. The comparison that I hear, or at least in, in some circles, would be uh, a D.D. Gregorius, if he's able to get to that point. And so Miami feels they have a shortstop of the future. They saw Gallen as a good pitcher, but not a great pitcher. I thought Zach Gallen had the potential to be a great pitcher, but certainly Miami in this case was targeting a player on the Diamondbacks in Chisholm. They want him to be their shortstop. They want him to be their everyday shortstop, maybe at the end of next year or even into 2021. And guys, as you know, in order to get talent, you got to give up talent. So in this case, some people would say, why not Caleb Smith? Why not someone else? Caleb Smith, Mike Hill told us, hey, left-handed pitcher. We don't have another one in the organization of that caliber. And you got to put a little bit of a, 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 a edge up for a guy like Caleb Smith because of that. So uh, I don't think they trade any other starting pitchers this offseason. That's needless to say. And so uh, here we go, uh, as, as I talked about. Chisholm now the shortstop of the future for the Marlins and Gallon now a member of the Diamondbacks. Right at the deadline, they acquired a pretty big minor league bat in Jesus Sanchez, but they had to give up Trevor Richards and Nick Anderson in order to acquire him along with Ryan Stanek. Uh, what do you have on that trade? Well, first of all, what happened after the Gallon trade was pretty eerie because I've covered Major League Baseball and clubhouses for a long time. But that was a shocked group of guys in a shocked clubhouse that Gallon was gone. And, and look, I know players. I know faces. I know moods. I've covered this for a long time. And there was a lot of laughing going on on the side. Not about Gallon at all. Just about just trying to stay comfortable, trying to stay loose. But there's no doubt that on deadline day, those guys were shook 
to see uh, Gallon traded. And I think it reminds people and players that anybody could get traded at any time in Major League Baseball. Uh, Gallon was really great after, uh, talked for a while, uh, you know, in fact, did all of his interviews and then did a, a set of some more. And then at that point, it was about uh, 3.30 uh, Eastern. So we are asked at that point to leave the Marlins clubhouse. And uh, around 3.40, I'm going to say, maybe 3.45, I start uh, getting information that leads me to believe that the Marlins are engaged in getting ready to potentially make another trade. So initially, I'm thinking that it's one of those guys on the expiring contracts. Uh, I find out right around uh, uh, 10 to go to the hour that it is not Castro and it is not Granderson, but I, I was not getting any response on Walker. And I don't think that there was a ton of interest on Walker, but I think that there was a possibility of him being traded. Uh, then I find out that it's Tampa Bay that's involved in the deal. And my understanding in this is that the final version of this trade was not the uh, initial version, at least that that was talked about. But yes, Miami ends up getting these players. Uh, I think that in order to get the deal done on Miami's end, they uh, needed Stanek in the deal to make that the final piece of the puzzle. Uh, and that was kind of the sticking point is Miami wanted that extra pitcher. The Marlins always seem to, in past trades under Mike Hill, always look for a pitcher or add a pitcher to the deal. And in this case, it ends up being Stanek, who's on the injured list. And we'll talk about kind of how he fits into the future in a minute. But again, another trade where Miami served as the aggressive team, where, where they were in the, at the deadline looking for controllable pieces and now add another left-handed, offensive-minded player who can also play defense, by the way, in Sanchez. In terms of people who I've talked to, I think the results have been pretty, uh, pretty even. The first trade that they made is going to be considered a little bit risky because Gallon is a, a more of a known quantity than Chisholm, but Chisholm has the upside of any great shortstop in all of Major League Baseball in terms of prospects. And I think that Miami crushed the uh, Rays deal. I, I, think the, I think the Marlins did fantastic in that one. Every single person who I've heard from who's texted outside of the organization, inside the organization, or even spoke to, all feel like, uh, you know, Mike Hill – and all the people with him did a fantastic job. But here's the bottom line, guys. None of these deals happen unless the Marlins scouting and development turn an independent league pitcher and another pitcher that was basically in a throwaway trade in Nick Anderson into Jesus Sanchez and Ryan Stanek. I, I can't begin to say that enough. Yes, both pitchers served their purpose with the Marlins this season and Richards last year, too. And both of them could go on to have really nice careers at the major league level. And they may even be very good with Tampa. They do a great job analytically in figuring out how to get the most out of their pitchers. But this is a matter of a new day for Miami, which is basically uh, cultivating and developing assets and flipping them for either players or maybe even more assets in the future. So big time A plus kudos to Mike Hill and the development staff for pulling off the uh, raise trade and specifically with Mike Hill, who from what I understand was really good uh, in getting that raise trade done and certainly will grade these trades as we go. But hopefully that takes people a little bit behind the curtain as to what was going on, on, uh, on trade deadline day up until that four o'clock uh, Eastern time.
Yeah, it, I mean, to me, it was super exciting to see, uh, I mean, a prospect prospect trade at a deadline. I mean, if Miami being the aggressor. Um, Jazz Chisholm has every tool you could think of to dream on, but just hasn't put it all together as a complete player yet. Um, do you think any of the scouting on Chisholm came with the added development of the international scouting for Miami. He came from the same academy that uh, Ian Lewis just came from in Nassau. So, I mean, to me, that looks at something like they've been looking at for more than for more than a little bit. Yeah, I think that they probably wanted him when Arizona had him. The other thing that I thought of, but apparently uh, it's it's a little bit of a reach, was one of my initial thoughts, Ian, was that what they're doing is trying to corner the market in the Bahamas. And by adding Chisholm and Ian Lewis, that would give them a nice recruiting edge to potential future players in the Bahamas. And I'm not so sure that that's, that's, that's out, but I don't think that that had a factor in this trade right here. Simply put, and, and here is something kind of to chew on a little bit, whether or not the Marlins in the future decide to sign a high-priced free agent, we really don't know. I don't ever think the Miami market is going to afford a player that you can pay a stand contract to, a $300 million, maybe even a $250 million contract. I mean, their TV contract's not even done yet. They're new deal. So that being said, in order for them to acquire a player like a Didi Gregorius in the offseason, let's say, for example, they were to do that. I know, Ian, you wrote about that. That's going to cost a lot of money. If the Marlins inevitably at some point decide they want to trade for uh, or even try and sign Francisco Lindor, who I do think that eventually could be a possibility, that's also going to cost a lot of money. So then conversely, what if this Zach Allen trade uh, turns into a player that is D.D. Gregorius at shortstop? And I don't, I'm not going to try and put a Francisco Lindor comparison on this kid. I'm, I'm not even going to come close to that. But what if he's somewhere in between? And what if he turns out to be a really good shortstop and Miami doesn't have to go ahead and spend that kind of money to get that kind of player? and is able to use the money on some other players, including contracts extensions of players of their own, like Sixto Sanchez and some of the other offensive players who they have coming through the pipeline. J.J. Blade eventually will need to get paid, too, in four or five years. So, uh, long story short, I think that that is kind of the reasoning behind it. They want a starting shortstop, a quality shortstop, and as we've seen, they keep adding left-handed bats. So I think that kind of summarizes the trade. I wouldn't rule out, by the way, them... Uh, you know, chasing a free agent shortstop or a free agent at any position. Uh, but I think for now, Miguel Rojas probably goes into the season as a starter next year at short. And then at some point we will see Chisholm. And remember, Rojas will be a free agent, I believe, after next year. Although right. Miggy could play third, he could play second, he could play anywhere on the field. But, you know, will, his future at some point will be determined. But I would still think that Chisholm will start the year off for sure next year in the minors. I think it's very important to see that the Marlins got very creative this deadline, including the Sergio Romo trade in which they acquired Lewin Diaz, which I'll have some more information on in my next article on swingsandmishes.com. Don't miss that. And according to Fangraphs and their new system for farm rankings, they've propelled themselves all the way to number four. But now we're also talking not just about the farm, but those guys moving up to the major leagues. You got Isan Diaz, who seems very close to making his major league debut. What do you have on that, Craig? 
Yeah, and this is going to be a dicey situation, I think, for for the Marlins. It was uh, addressed a little bit by Don Mattingly and Mike Hill on the field before the game on Wednesday. And I don't think that we really got a clear picture as to what is going to happen here. Now, as I've said before on this podcast, and I've said it on social media and everywhere else, uh, Castro has been blocking Diaz from coming up, and that remains to be the case right now. At the same time, you have Castro, who has been a veteran in this league for a long time, and certainly you want to make sure that he's handled the proper way. But in, in the way that Mike Hill was talking, it didn't, he didn't really give what I would call a rousing endorsement to making sure to say that Castro is going to be somebody that's fitting into the next two months and playing every day. He didn't say that at all. He basically said that we're going to have to sit down and talk to him and talk to some of the other players who were in similar situations. Now, how does that conversation go? I'm not really sure. I can tell you that Castro got virtually no attention whatsoever on the trade deadline. Like there were not teams calling and asking for Castro at all. It was not even a matter of let's split this, let's split that. He was just not a factor, period. Uh, I don't believe the Marlins would designate him for assignment. Again, there's a respect factor there. He's done things the right way. But the other thing is, in order to call up Isan Diaz to play second base, Castro would have to play, obviously, another position. Uh, Right now, Castro, as of yesterday or a day before, and I can't speak to what happens on the road in Tampa, has not practiced any other position. And as I've talked about previously on this podcast, has not been asked to play third base since he was with the Cubs many years ago. He played a few games at shortstop in 2016. So my guess is if I had to, to spitball this thing, would be maybe Castro this weekend in, uh, in St. Petersburg starts getting some repetitions and some practice at another position, like third. And if that indeed is the case, then that would certainly open up the door for him to play that position. But I don't think that this would be a, a scenario where Friday at 3 o'clock we look at the lineup and Castro's all of a sudden just playing another position. I don't think that that would be the case. So this could take some time. And because of that, I think that the uh, ETA on Diaz still may be a little bit away. Uh, I don't know if we're talking about early next week or maybe the week after that. As I've said uh, here and, and on Twitter as well, I thought that there was a chance that he could get called up this weekend because certainly he could play second, Castro could DH. But as of now, I'm not hearing that that is in the plans. So perhaps next week, perhaps the week after that. But I would say this, Miami absolutely has to resolve the situation. And Diaz needs to be playing second base in August and September. Uh, September is not a good evaluation period for any player. And I think that even this new regime in Miami learned that a little bit last year with a couple of the guys who played well in September and were really given carte blanche, I thought, uh, going into spring training in the season. So... That's what we're waiting on at this point. And um, the ETA, I'm, I still would say that it's an August ETA, but it may not be August 3rd, which is kind of the date that I thought, which is the first game where Miami will be on the road playing in St. Petersburg. I think we may have to wait a little bit longer. I wouldn't rule out this weekend completely, but as of right now, I'm not sure that he gets the call to play the race. Yeah, it almost sounds like you might need to give us a percentage on the how, how much you might be in. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, at some, I think they have to give any major league player, even if it's Starlin Castro, like some reps in yeah. practice at third, like I or or anywhere else. Like I, I, I mean, JT Riddle, you know, he went to the minors before he played center field for a while, just to use a Marlins example. And and certainly, I would think that I don't think Castro could play short, but I would think that maybe he could play third. But I would guess that he'd have to practice there a little bit, like before a game and work with the infield coaching and, and, and just be ready to play. Would they just throw him in a game? And, and the other thing, too, is that that doesn't necessarily help their young starters and their infield defense either. It's a little complicated. I have to say, it is a little complicated. I thought it was really important for them to find him a home, but it just shows you how little interest there must have been for them not to move him because it is supremely important, I think, to get Diaz some playing time. So. We'll see how it works out. I still think we'll see Diaz for sure this month. No question. So how do you think uh, Neil Walker and Curtis Granderson's roles will change in these next two months since now they won't really be in the trade block anymore, but now they'll just be regular major league contributors? I'll give those two guys a lot of credit on Wednesday. You would never know that there was a trade deadline going on with those two guys. Two really classy unfazed veterans by anything neil walker was holding court in the clubhouse granderson's just walking around having a good time and you could tell it wasn't fake it was just like you know whatever if, if something happens it happens and if it doesn't it doesn't uh you know granderson is is such a a great guy and and has been a great mentor for the guys who are in the big leagues and will be i think in the next two months for the young guys and, and honestly did anybody really think he was going to get traded on Wednesday? I personally did not. It just hasn't been his year. And I would guess that this may be his last year in the big leagues. And he's had a fantastic career for sure. In terms of Walker, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk to him. I mean, I would guess there's got to be a little disappointment with him. Uh, there, there probably would have been a chance for him to go to another team, Philadelphia, maybe back to the Yankees. They lost Luke Voigt. Stanton's on the injured list, but no, no real interest there for him. So I would think that he'll get very a few starts, maybe some pinch hit rolls with Miami, but very hard to justify uh, playing Neil, uh, you know, over a guy like John Birdie, honestly, who who Miami would want to take a look at. And and there's really no room at short. We know there's no room at second. He's not going to play those positions. And then you go to first. And Garrett Cooper, like you want to, if when Garrett Cooper's healthy, you want to see him play every single day at first base and get as many at bats as he can going into next year too, because I think he's the w one of few guys that projects as a starter at his position. So, Lewis, I think that a tough spot also for Neil Walker, but I have no doubt that both those guys, Walker and Granderson, are going to handle this extremely well. Like I said, Castro's willing to play any position also, but I just. I just don't know yet in my heart of hearts how he's going to feel having the great career that he's had, four-time All-Star, played on great franchises like the Cubs and the Yankees, and then has to sit in a room and be told that a rookie's going to come up and take his spot and he's not going to play. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to make a prediction there. I just would like to see it play out. But to this point, Castro has said and done all the right things. I mean, I mean that's, that's exactly what you want to hear out of, out of the veterans from the clubhouse. I mean – this team is teams full of young guys and to go through a trade deadline when you're seeing young guys getting dealt and to see the veterans be a positive presence in that locker room during that time is what you want to see from this team right now. So 
I would imagine we're not going to see that much Granderson for the rest of the year. I mean, I would hope he would get his, his starts when he does, but I think this team's going to do fine with the, with the outfield they have, and I think we're going to see Yeah, but I do think that these trades, Ian, indicate there could be a little bit of – well, not a little, a lot of, of a shift in thinking with that. And, and look, they'll, they'll still continue to say all the right things about Brinson, but you have Blade now in the outfield, and you have Meisner on the way. And you have Connor Scott now all of a sudden who looks like he could be a player. You know Miami's going to go sign somebody in free agency. Eventually, you would assume Monte Harrison's going to be healthy. I just think that Brinson's time is – I think he really got his full opportunity over the course of a year and then even into this year. And and you guys would have to tell me more about this, but at least from the numbers that I'm seeing and the advanced numbers, there doesn't seem to be a huge change in, in at least stylistic approach from what Brinson's doing in, in, uh, in New Orleans. So I, I still think Miami feels like he could be a big league player. I just don't know that he's, he's, in, he's in the priority list now. I think that Jesus Sanchez is now in the priority list for Miami. Uh, you know, Victor, Victor Mesa, who they would love to see, a, you know, become a, a very good big league player, is also in that priority. And let's not forget Giren Carnacion in the minors too, another player who they like a lot. So it's not over, Ian, for Brinson. I wouldn't say that, but I, I, I can't believe that Miami still has the same optimism or even close that they did a year ago. You know, we saw how the Marlins, as early as right now, moved starting pitching, banking on their on their younger starters down the line even with all this outfield depth, say Brinson does turn into a good major league baseball player or some of the other guys down the road, they could trade out of that depth just like they did with their starting pitching. But getting into the the bullpen, because now we have an interesting situation. Richards had became like the seventh inning man. And then you had Nick Anderson um, getting some leverage situations. And Romo was obviously the closer. What, what's the state of the bullpen now? Is there any indication which way they'll go? Yeah, this is going to be a mess, I would say, from now until the end of the year. And I, honestly, Lewis, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of clarity here. You know, I, I really have to say that I may be wrong about Quijada. I, I did not like what I saw from Quijada early, and it does seem like he still walks too many guys. Like, he, he leads off inning sometimes with walks. But the way that Don Mattingly is, has kind of gone about his business is – and he says that he wants to use different guys and they're going to be matchups, but I, I don't ever see it that way. It seems like he has his sixth inning guy, his seventh inning guy, his eighth inning guy, and his ninth. Well, the ninth inning guy was Romo, so I would just basically push everybody up when Romo was out, and then I would have Nick Anderson there as a possibility. Uh, now that Nick Anderson is gone, I think it's just open season for anyone – but I, I'm going to say that Quijada may get a shot. I think Mattingly likes him a lot. I've heard him say a lot of positive things about him. He's got swing and miss stuff. Uh, he throws hard enough, I think, to be able to be in that spot. And honestly, it's by default here. There really is no one else. So uh, I know that there's this dream of Jose Arena maybe being the closer. Uh, what, for the last week or two of the season? Maybe. I mean, uh, but what, I don't know what, what – purpose that would serve I, I think they may need Arrhenia as a, as a starter honestly in September as opposed to a closer so that'll have to be something Miami addresses in the offseason I don't believe they uh, think Tyron Guerrero 
will be a ninth inning guy or even an eighth inning guy. Uh, I think he'll be with the Marlins next year, but I'm just not convinced that they think that he's anything more than, than like a sixth inning type guy. I, I just, I don't, he just, he has not really progressed. I think in the way that they've wanted him to, and then beyond that second rider would have to get healthy. I think he could factor in and we know what Adam Conley's been this year. And I think Conley just needs a change of scenery and I could see him being moved or moved on, move on at the end of the year. So Miami will really have to uh, re-piece this bullpen together in the off season. But the one good thing about this that should not be lost is Miami will have a really nice opportunity to take this kid from Tampa, Ryan Stanek, and make him the closer next year. I think that there's a good shot of that happening. And Stanek has been very good for Tampa. So at least you can start with that and maybe Quijada, but honestly, beyond that, even with 2020, they're going to have to spend a little bit of money there. It's not something that I recommend going out and spending $30 million or $40 million, but maybe a one-year guy, similar to Romo, but maybe a little bit more, and maybe even two guys like that, because uh, the state of it right now, is, as we're talking about here, is very bleak and it's very thin. And unfortunately, the Major League product is going to have to take a hit here over the next week or so until they f- figure this out. You know, and you mentioned Romo, who um, even in his departure on his way to Minnesota playoff team really seemed to, you know, be sad about having to move on from Miami. And obviously the fans really liked him. Uh, do you think there's any shot they could even bring him back next year for another year? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think that they'd probably go younger. Um, you know, it's a nice story, and he's definitely a really good guy, and he was good in the clubhouse here. But I don't know that they want to be right back down that same road again. And by the way, he did pitch great in June and July, but he really wasn't that great in April and May. I, I think we've kind of seen his best stuff. My, my guess is he will pitch another year, but I, I, I think it's time for Miami to take one of these young kids and see if they can make a closer out of them. And they've done that very well as a franchise in the past, but the last few years they've had some trouble maintaining that. And we saw Bearclaw in that role struggle a little bit. We certainly saw a second rider struggle. So I, I think it could be a young type guy, maybe from another team, even potentially. I would have thought Nick Anderson would have had a shot to be that guy. But they could look look what they did with Anderson, finding him from Minnesota and making him into one of the most high leverage pitchers on the team with all the strikeouts he had. So I think they can do that again and I think they'll find someone for that role. Yeah, and I mean, in, in trading Gallon and a lot of these young starters, uh, you figure the Marlins must be really confident in the in the pitchers they have in Jupiter and Jacksonville right now. Um, I've had a chance to see Sixto Sanchez and Edward Cabrera a lot lately. And um, from my eye, very impressive stuff. But uh, when do you think they'll be ready for the major leagues? And have the Marlins given any indication that they would even have a shot next year? I think Sixto Sanchez will be on the Marlins, and yeah, for sure, in 2020. Yeah, I, I don't know that there would be a reason to have him in April, but I think that you could probably see him starting off the season in Wichita, right? Is that correct, for their AAA yeah. next year? I could see him being the open day, opening day Wichita starter, making three or four starts, and then we see him sometime late April and May, and I think Edward Cabrera maybe a little bit later than that in June. And so essentially what you're looking at is an opening day starter probably of Caleb Smith, unless they want to go righty-lefty-righty. But let's assume for the, the moment it is Caleb Smith at the top. And then Sandy Alcantara 
who I know that has had a tough time since the All-Star break, but bottom line, uh, throwing a lot of innings, healthy, goes deep into games. He's going to be a rotation piece. Uh, assuming Pablo Lopez is healthy, he would be in there as well. And then Miami would have to piece together their four and five, and it could be outside of the organization where they find another starting pitcher. Maybe it is a veteran that's thrown 180 or 200 innings in the past. Look how cheap some of those pitchers went this past offseason, like Gio Gonzalez as as an example. Look how late it took him to sign. Maybe a reunion with him to get 150 innings out of him, uh, you know, until they decide to call up Sixto and call up Edward Cabrera. And then their five-starter, I mean, you guys tell me. I don't know. I mean, maybe Yamamoto gets a shot. Maybe Eliezer Hernandez gets a shot. I don't know how they feel about Jorge Guzman at this point. Maybe they move him to the bullpen. Nick Nider has had some injuries. But they still do have a lot of viable arms that they could use. But I think what Miami has to kind of ask themselves next year, would it be better to add a veteran to this squad? Because their veteran going into the season was Dan Straley. And then, of course, they let him go right before the year and they put Chen in the bullpen. So they didn't really have a true veteran. It may be worth their time to invest a little bit of money in that to have that for next year. I mean, that would make the most sense for this young rotation. I mean, speaking of the rotation, I mean, who do you believe is going to make up the fifth starter for the next few weeks until Pablo eventually, I guess, make his return to the rotation if he's healthy? Good question, Ian. No real answer there. They could dip into the minors and go on the 40-man and and go with Hector Noesi, who, uh, look, I mean, he can he's he could throw five innings, you know, and that just may be it at this point, Ian. Like, I, I don't know that they really have a ton of other options. And we're, we're recording before the Marlins play the Twins on Thursday. But, I mean, Yamamoto's last couple of starts before this Twins start were really concerning that all of a sudden teams are starting to lay off his pitches and he was starting to walk a lot of guys and then being forced to throw strikes, he's going to give up some big tanks. So uh, not clear also, but honestly, guys, when you get to this stage of the season and you know you're not going to compete, Yes, of course, you want to put a good product on the field. You owe it to the fans to try and compete. But I, I think that we've kind of seen the best of what we've seen of the Marlins. They've been a – up until the Twin Series where they're now getting outclassed a little bit, they've been a 500 team since May or since June, whenever it is. And a lot of that was great pitching performances and some timely hitting. But there comes a point where you have to start trading players and changes have to start being made. And lucky for them, football comes and, and the attention's off them a little bit. And, and however many games they win in the end, does it really make a difference, honestly, one way or the other? I, I really don't think so. So they'll figure it out. They'll piece it together, whether it is somebody in the minors or whether they stretch Chen out to make a start. But – It'll, it'll work itself out, and I do think, by the way, that we'll see Arania back at some point making starts before the end of the year to preserve that time. Uh, Pablo's probably still, I would say, another 10 days away. This team is going to have to be carried by Caleb Smith and, and Sandy Alcantara and hopefully Pablo Lopez down the stretch and then maybe Eliezer and piecing together the last, the last few uh, starts for these guys, you know, Mattingly alluded to maybe even a six man rotation. So man, I just, I hate to just say that the last two months don't mean anything because I know they do. And there's an evaluation going on, but it's far more interesting in the last month or two to 
monitor what the future of the club is going to be because you just know that they're eliminated and there's and it's not like there's any chance right now no matter what they do of getting into the postseason so it is just basically trying to keep guys healthy stay competitive and and be interesting at a time where it's really tough to be because as we know living in south florida once football starts and you and you're competing for attention against the hurricanes and the Dolphins, and then, of course, you have Miami playing Florida on August 23rd. <laughs> you have a lot to compete against, and so, you know, get that time in and that attention in now. Well, Craig, I think you've been working now for, I think it's been probably 48 hours straight. Yeah, I'm done. I think, <laughs> I think we've covered mostly everything that's happened on this, on yesterday's wild trade deadline, and I think that's, I think that's everything for, for today. I think we've really covered it all. Um, I'm, I'm Ian Smith. I'm here with Lewis and, and Craig once again. And um, do you guys have anything else to close us out today? Yeah, well, no, I really appreciate you guys taking your time to hear what we have to say. And uh, Craig? It's always a great and wonderful experience to cover Major League Baseball, and I never take it for granted. And being able to cover a trade deadline, it can be fun. It can also be stressful. And, and it can also, you know, nothing can happen. But I think the biggest takeaway for me was kind of finding out more or less after the fact that the Marlins were aggressors at the Major League Baseball trade deadline this year. They did not sit back. They did not wait for teams to call them about players. They were chasing down the players that they wanted because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to acquire them in the offseason. They had targeted players that they wanted. And you talk about a change in organizational philosophy – that's something that I've never heard them do ever before in my history in covering the team. So I'll leave you with that.